And uh, one, uh, one provision uh, that you bow down and worship me. And, uh, and the temptation is there. And what I want to do is I want to start from the angle that we are all reading this text as those who did bow down. Uh, everyone who's read this, this portion of the Bible who, or who has heard it preached has, is reading it from a particular perspective. We are to be amazed at Jesus. We are to adore him because he doesn't bow down. And he keeps his, his vigilance and he keeps his, uh, his integrity. And uh, there is so much to be gleaned right there. But I want to start from the angle that we are those who have bowed down. We are those who have sold out to what is instant. Uh, we, have, we have bowed down to other glories. And I want, to, I want us to, to think about that in terms of, if that's true of us, does that help us actually engage others who have, who have bowed down to some kind of glory? Does that help us if we acknowledge the truthfulness of that? If, if we distance ourselves from, from others as if we have not bowed down, I would suggest that we don't have any ministry with other people. We may want to minister in the name of Jesus. We may want to come as a, known as a Christian to, uh, to another person. But I'm going to suggest that if we don't think uh, often and regularly of ourselves as those who have bowed down, we will not actually be able to, in an authentic way, connect with those who have bowed down. Thinking of the uh, Winter Olympics and uh, thinking of competition, thinking of myself and how I behave when I watch uh, our daughter play basketball, and I think, you know, it's just a high school girls basketball game. Relax, Dad. It's okay. I think of that poor foul that uh, that or the the wrong call of the ref. I think about how ridiculous I am when it comes to competitive sports. Uh, dejected when an American skier doesn't win. I, I'm. I'm just helpless. And um, I want you to think about yourself. Maybe you pride yourself on how cool you are in competitive sports. And uh, you look at that other parent at the soccer game who's just crazy about this nine-year-old game, and they're, they're, they're yelling at the ref, and the ref has, has to come over and talk to them and warn them that the other team's going to get a penalty kick if you keep this up. And you, and you sort of distance yourself from that parent. That's, this guy is just crazy. You pride yourself in how your emotions are held in check. Who would ever bow down to competitive sports? But uh, I want to challenge you, and I want to challenge myself even as I'm preaching here, to to think of ways to honestly connect with, with those who do bow down. And they, in, in an idolatrous way, uh, give themselves to something. This is a series where we're laying down a template over these texts and we're asking the question, do these texts inform us about ministry itself? Again, we always read these texts as those who cannot claim righteousness. It's only Jesus who is righteous. And it's a beautiful text. It's Jesus in the wilderness like Israel was in the wilderness. In fact, uh, in Exodus, the, the children of Israel are characterized as, as God's son. And in, in, in the wilderness, God tested his son to find out what was in his heart. And 
Israel failed miserably. Jesus is now in the wilderness to be tested. He is the true Israel. He is the second Adam who, in the wilderness, does not uh, take the fruit, does not take the, the bait of Satan. It probably is true that these kingdoms that Satan shows Jesus, uh, this inheritance that Jesus will, in fact, inherit the new heavens and new earth and their glories, it probably felt a long way off. Jesus has nothing up to this point. He is unknown. He's hungry. And nothing but trouble lays ahead for Jesus. Uh, and now, here it is, an instant accomplishment. And it's right there. Somehow, Satan has manifested the glories of these kingdoms. Um, not everything in our world is fallen. Uh, there are beautiful things in a city like Paris or London or Honolulu. There are things that um, God in his providence has overcome the sinfulness of man and has created beauty. Uh, the Eiffel Tower in Paris is stunning. It's beautiful. It has a, a lasting beauty to it. It's, it's glorious. And the glories of these kingdoms in some way is manifested to Jesus. These kingdoms represent a beautiful, well-ordered life. Maybe you think of, of, of cities like, I don't know, downtown New York, dangerous places where murder, crime takes place, uh, places where lots of graffiti. <laughs> and maybe you think of them as places of racial strife, but here they're presented as beautiful, well-ordered kind of the culmination of man. Man moves from a garden to a city in the Bible. And here these cities represent kind of the, kind of the beautiful aspects of, of, uh, of what Jesus would ultimately be, be all about to redeem us. And what have you accomplished so far, Jesus? Not much. So they must have felt a long, long way off. It was a real, real temptation. And is it worth suffering to get these things as it worth suffering. And in a moment, in a moment of adoration, just adore the devil for a moment. It doesn't seem like the devil's even asking him to continue to adore him. Just adore me for a moment. And you can go on your way. You can uh, worship your God. You can go after whatever your other goals are. Just, just, just in a moment, just, just bow down to me. And of course, Jesus responds that only God shall be loved and worshipped and served and he quotes Deuteronomy there in the desert. Just by way of a quick look at our outline, there's the power of the instant and the immediate. There's the power of illusion and the power of worship. Just these three kind of ideas. Um, the power of the instant. We live in an age where we are on demand, as, as some media com uh, companies uh, put it. We expect our entertainment on demand. Instant is a word that we are actually quite used to. The microwave is too slow. We, we expect uh, things in an instant way. Well, here it is, uh, uh, immediate gratification uh, offered by Satan. Uh, some 10 years ago, I think I turned to the girls... Uh, in a moment of, I don't know what, what I was I don't know, thinking, but I turned to them, I said, girls, if I was in charge of our money, Marianne's in charge of our money, uh, if I was in charge of our money, we'd have the coolest stereo. 
We'd have a really cool TV. We'd have really cool furniture. And we'd eat out in lots of restaurants. But we'd live in a van. <laughs> Instant. We don't give me the credit card. I get too creative. The instant and the immediate are sort of impulsive ways of living. We see that this in our children, don't we? The instant and the immediate is something where, well, Americans sort of love that stuff. We expect it way into the mature ages of our lives. And uh, I'm going to suggest that these are imposters. They're a way of avoiding something about ourselves. They're a way of not looking at ourselves. Instant, instant whatever, instant media, instant entertainment, instant recognition, instant approval, instant infatuation, instant what? Well, Western societies in particular have seen this as increased autonomy, control, and self-determination. It is a it is a kind of lust in us. And we think of those that Jesus ministered to. Think of someone like Zacchaeus who, who used his power as, as a tax collector with, with Roman guards to back him up to, to extort money from people. And that instant rush of excitement to have extra cash anytime he needed it. Or the woman at the well who would not give up on men. Ladies, you should have talked to her. She would not give up on men. And it wasn't until Jesus in many ways healed her with his love that she was healed from this kind of approval seeking but in, through the love of men. There's a way of escape that, that the scriptures offer us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that when we are tempted, there is a way of escape. But the temptation feels so powerful. It feels so, it, it will bring us glory. Bring us glory. It will bring us healing. What kind of people might we be if we understood how weak we are how often we wear the imposter of immediate and the instant. How, what kind of people might we be when we understand others who have lived like this as well? Christian counselor Ed Welch has written a book on addiction, and he says this, that as we seek to minister to those who suffer from addiction, listen to this. He says, addicts must know that they are receiving, excuse me, that they are being given a gift. Listen to this. And those who are helping addicts must know how to give this gift in a way that reflects its cost and its beauty. You're not selling me something cheap. You're not giving me some quick solution. No, this is costly. It is beautiful. And it will heal you. See, Jesus, in his love, can heal us from our addictions. Do you find yourself drawn to sinners? Drawn to sinners. Moving toward them, not away from them, 
There's a lot that might repulse you. There's a lot that might bother you. You've spent your time uh, uh, trying to grow in wisdom and virtues. You, you have tried to obey the Bible. You've, you've done a lot to, to improve your life, to, to not engage in foolishness. You're, you're watchful. But is the gospel a functioning power that actually helps you be attentive to those who have bowed down? Does it draw you in? Does it intrigue you? Does the gospel move you toward people and, ha- and increase in you questions about their life where you are drawn to them? I'm always uh, intrigued by... Uh, whenever I think I'm sort of off duty as a pastor, you know, I'm always intrigued. Like, for instance, I was uh, to the, a study leave. I'm afforded a, a couple of weeks of study leave each year. And so just prior to the Presbytery meeting uh, a couple of Fridays ago, I was in uh, Park City, Utah. And uh, Marianne and uh, Amaris and I, we were in Houston and we flew. They flew home here and I flew to Salt Lake City and, and uh, made my way up to Park City, Utah about two in the afternoon on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, Robbie Plemons is the PCA pastor there. And, uh, and he met up with me. And uh, uh, we're talking about his town. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that happened to me was, while I was sort of killing time, I went on, I was on Main Street. And I, I just pulled into a parking spot and walked into the no-name saloon. Yes, your pastor went into the no-name saloon. And the place was rocking because it was Super Bowl Sunday. And there was an empty seat there, and so I sat there, and I ordered some nachos. And a guy next to me, his name was Jerry. And I started talking to Jerry. And Jerry found out a little bit about my life, and I found out he was a chef, and he was just taking a break from where he really he was, didn't work there. He worked down the street. And he said, if you want to watch the Super Bowl, you should come down to where I work. This place is too noisy. We got better TVs down where I am. Well, where are you? I'm at the Boneyard Saloon. (laughs) So if the no-name saloon isn't enough, I hung out at the Boneyard. (laughs) So very interesting. So I walk into the Boneyard, and I already know the chef. His name is Jerry. Actually, his name is Jerry Garcia. How about that? So I walk in there, and Jerry greets me. Jerry points me to certain things on the menu, and I'm hanging out, and I'm sitting next to a guy named Sully. And Sully and I are next to a guy named Chuck. And Chuck, Todd, and Sully are hanging out for four hours watching a weird game. And uh, it's interesting. Interesting the things you hear at the Boneyard Saloon. Very competent man named Sully. A graphic designer. Designed many of the menus of the restaurants. And he designed the menu I was looking at. So for a moment I was there on the inside of some of the key players of the Boneyard Saloon. I met the owner. All this is going on. It's just happening. And Sully begins to talk with me and I talk with him and... You know, what's interesting is that Sully had a lot on his heart. And he said, you know, 
A lot of people give me a lot of attention about my abilities as an artist, but really, I'm just a drunk. And he gave me a couple of lines about, uh, you know, how in the end, I hope God, uh, God will acknowledge some of the few things, some of the things I've done that are good. And uh, I didn't give him any real clever answers or any cheap answers. I just hung out with him and listened. And I wanted him to know that I was, he was with someone who had the same proclivities of the heart as he does. I bowed down to various kinds of glory. And I understand the instant society, the instant hope that we live in, the, the glories that we hope will somehow he- heal us. Addicts must know that it is a gift and that it reflects, that we reflect its cost and its beauty. We've all bowed down. And as strange as this is, if you want to reach Kailua, that's one of the first things you have to acknowledge. Kailua will not be listening to someone who says, I've never bowed down. The people in various restaurants and who work in our town will not listen to us. If, even if we say we are there in the name of Jesus, unless we acknowledge that we too have bowed down. But God comes after those who have bowed down and have sold themselves to instant gratification that has just left them empty all over again. Of course, then we can explore the world of, of illusion, the power of illusion the devil is really making up a fictional world. It isn't his world. Yet there are some scriptures that do indicate that the, the kingdoms of this world belong to the devil. But in, in the big picture, the, the central role of God is to play, is to be uh, center for us as human beings. He has no role in this. We were not made for him. He's created a, a complete fiction. It's a fakery to assume he has a key role or to receive worship. But for us, some of us have bought into illusions. We are recovering from buying into illusion. Pursuits that we thought had saving power. Things that we believed would work for us. An illusion is believing the senses or wrongly perceiving something. The magician really didn't make the, ha- the rabbit appear out of nowhere. The rabbit really was there all the time. But our perception is that it came out of nowhere. We perceived something as real, but in fact it wasn't real. Phil Kagi was a, a Christian uh, musician years ago, very popular, and he wrote one song where it had the refrain. It said it w- his conversion was like coming out of the longest dream. We are in recovery from illusion and dream-like living. We are fellow dreamers. We are mirage chasers. We have bowed to illusion. And when we present ourselves, our words, our tone, our manner, when we we minister to other people, we minister as those who thought something could deliver us, rescue us, make us whole, something that was going to work for us. 
For pastors, it's, it's ministry. For others, it's our career. It's the approval of others. It's our family. Something is going to work for us. Something is going to be a, have a, a kind of a saving power for us. This alone will complete me. This alone will deliver me. Maybe it's academics. Maybe it's, in fact, it's, again, it's, it's sort of a, you're feeling stale in your marriage. And there's the illusory intimacy of sort of that first fascination, that infatuation, that mood I must chase. Once again, in romantic love, I must find that again. I'm, I'm chasing down not a drink at the bar, but a look across the room. People engage in one romantic encounter after another to live in a, in a place that is unreal and it never really delivers. In fact, I have to be honest with you and I hope you're honest before God today. We actually desire this. We actually want to live in an illusion. Illusions really have to destroy us before we'll stop buying into them. One writer observing the group Alcoholics Anonymous said this about these persons. These persons have had their lives laid bare and pushed to the brink by, by the destruction of alcoholism and its accompanying problems. When these persons rise from the hellfire of addictive bondage, they have an understanding, sensitivity, and willingness. That's what I'm after here. When they arise from the hellfire of addictive bondage, they have a sensitivity and willingness to enter into and maintain healing encounters with their fellow alcoholics. And in this encounter, they cannot and will not permit themselves to forget their brokenness and vulnerability. Their wounds are acknowledged, accepted, and kept visible. That's church. That's a description of church. We are a ragtag collection of bow-downers. That's what we are. And this is what our community needs. They will not ask for it, but they need it. In 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul describes what worship does for the non-believer. And what it does is that they see the authenticity and the genuineness and the I'm, I'm broken, see my wounds, no pretense. The non-Christian sees that and the secrets of their hearts are revealed to them. And what are those secrets? You're pretending. You're pretending before a holy God. Come to him. He will receive you as a... He, he's used to prodigals. Run to him. That's what worship is intended to do. So an authentic, heartfelt, I'm one who bowed, I'm one who bought into the illusion. Yes, that's me. Sully, you can't tell me anything about yourself that I can't identify with. And uh, who would know that through our failings and our weakness, God would say, that is where I will be present. That is what I will use. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. 
This is how we enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and so, uh, get the special gift, the special gift, let's look at this finally, the special gift of the power of worship. You see, Jesus holds on in the wilderness. His Father is, is worth worshiping in the wilderness when there is no evidence that he is there. In worship, we find that our God receives us. In worship, we find that our God will complete us. In worship, we find that God receives us as broken people. In worship, we are found. We are no longer hiding. We come to, Jesus, to our Heavenly Father through the one who did not bow, and he is beautiful, and he did not bow for us. And his his keeping, his integrity is transferred to us. It is as if you never bowed. You see? It's as if you never bought into the illusion. He gives you his righteousness in the gospel. In worship, we can see that we have bowed down, but our Father receives us. We can admit these things to ourselves in worship. It makes perfect sense that one of the impacts or the effect of worship is to have just brutal self-honesty. That's okay. And then something comes along where you find out that this is the self that God loves. This is the self that God came after. Yes, you feel like a prodigal. Yes, you feel miserable. Yes, you feel like you bowed once again and again and again. And our God has an infinite love and fatherly care for us. In worship, God communicates that we are received whether we like ourselves or not. In worship, we are reminded again and again that it is about the Son's obedience, not ours. In worship, we are not shamed, we are covered with mercy. We are brought into the temple. We are not left outside. In worship, we discover in new ways it is God who loves us and it is not about our love for God. In worship, we are being prepared to minister to others. In worship, we learn that we have been invaded by deformed lusts. These are brought to bear upon our conscience but also we learn that God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon us and we're filled with hope. In the gospel, Jesus says that he is the one who never bowed and he did this for us. So, this is a passage that is always read by those who have bowed down. And it is a gift to us because we see the gift of Jesus Christ who did not bow and he gives us his righteousness. And I hope that we will continue to to look at that and to explore that and to realize what a precious gift he is. And in the giving of this gift, we are in recovery. We are being given our dignity back for we bowed down to things 
that would just diminish our humanity. And it is through the gospel that we are renewed, rebuilt, remade. And from accepting ourselves, seeing ourselves, putting aside illusions and pretense, we see the one that our, your God loved. We see the one who loved us. And we see more clearly his power for us. Let's pray.